Hey there, AJ Cordero here, a co-host on the Hockey Flow. I've been podcasting since 2007, and I've seen many changes over the years. But the best one has been the introduction of Anchor. And here's why. It's because it's easy and it's free. Seriously, I've spent so much time, money, and effort to get something at this level back in the day. Now, with a push of a few buttons, all that time, money, and energy are spent producing the show rather than distributing it. Now, you might not think you need a podcast, and hey, maybe you don't. But don't think of a podcast just as a way to get your news, sports, and entertainment fixes. It can be a way to tell your family's stories, shine a light on your hobbies and communities, go in-depth for a love of your team, or discuss how to change the world. The possibilities are limitless. Anchor provides creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. They also distribute your podcast so you can be heard on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and every player that supports an RSS feed. You can even make money from your podcast with no minimum requirement on the size of your audience. Don't waste a second. Download the free Anchor app on your smartphone today or go to anchor.fm to get started. Do it. Seriously. The world is waiting to hear your story. This is The Hockey Flow. It's a brand new show that's not a brand new show, and I should really stop saying that, but I'm not because it always feels brand new with all the greatest and latest that's happening on the ice. I'm Major Cordero, and I'm bringing, of course, Marco D'Amico and Adam Boucher along for the ride. Marco can be found at scrimmageandstats.com, and you can find his Twitter at The Hockey Expert, and Adam Boucher can be found at ReallyAdamB. Now, last week's episode was pretty heavy, but this episode, we're going to switch it up. We're going to change gears, but we do want to cover a little bit of what we talked about last week and bring you some of the updates. So let's throw it over to you, Marco. Uh, where do we take it off on this situation with Mitch Miller? Uh, what's happening now? Uh, so from what I could see, um, from what I was able to follow throughout the, the week, uh, we saw that uh, Mitch Miller's rights were renounced by the Arizona Coyotes. Um, I think that's a shrewd move for the franchise from a PR perspective, but I don't think anybody's ever going to forget the fact that they knew most of the story, if not all of the story, and still decided to make Mitch, Mitchell Miller their first pick in, in the draft in the fourth round. Uh, I don't think anybody's going to forget that, but that's good PR for them. Uh, on the flip side, though, the University of North Dakota uh, essentially cut ties uh, with the youngster as well. Uh, he was slated to to head over to that pretty prestigious program, uh, and they also cut ties with him. So it seems that now that it's out in the open, even though uh, hockey scouts and, and, and recruiters for big-time university programs are said to do a ridiculous amount of diligence when it comes to, uh, you know, personality tests and, and psychology exams and, and, and really getting to know players, that's, that's what they're there for. Uh, it really goes to show you that uh, if it can be kept hush-hush, uh, nothing is unforgivable in, in hockey, apparently. Um, however, when it's put out in the open and sponsors are involved and, 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 and I guess the social democratic uh, business that is sports kind of gets involved, um, you really will not have as many allies as you do on the ground. And we saw it, unfortunately, for, for, for Mitchell Miller, but fortunately for the sport of hockey. I feel like this is a resounding no from the hockey community that this simply will not be tolerated. And I'm all for it. I don't know. Like, Adam, I felt 
I, I, um, I saw that uh, some people thought that this was potentially a little harsh. Uh, I, I will admit I feel sympathy for the kid, not because I feel like he's in the right, uh, not because I excuse what happens, but because, you know, yes, you could have done something incredibly bad and you can be extremely vile to the core, uh, but we are talking about a kid that just turned 18. Um, if the entire world were after me at the age of 18, I don't know. I just, I guess I sympathize there because I know what it is to be public enemy number one. Obviously, I've never done anything this bad, but I, I know what that feels like. Um, so I, I do sympathize, but hopefully he learns from this and hopefully this is an example for future generations. Yeah, I think it's it's a move that had to be done, not only for the team, for the, the Coyotes, but for the league just to, to set an example going forward. Uh, and look, now there was rumors that uh, some KHL teams were interested in, in his services. So I guess if the player really wants to go and pursue his hockey career somewhere else, he has a KHL now, but... I think that's a really good move and it, it sends a better image for the, the NHL that what they did before. So, yeah, I have to agree on what you say here. Um, I mean, look, it's, it is what it is, but I, you know, other than simply just, I guess, virtue signaling and, and, and canceling things, um, there are obviously more constructive ways that reparations can be made. Um, and we, we're seeing it right now with the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, I like that AJ brought this up at the beginning of the uh, of the show when we were talking about um, trends in, in, in hockey as we speak, because the Chicago Blackhawks uh, have come to an agreement where, uh, AJ, uh, if, remind me again what the official terminology is. So essentially what the Blackhawks will be doing is they're going to be making a formal land acknowledgement, which essentially they recognize the the relationship between the indigenous people of the area and the traditional territories and the organizations placed in that space. So um, this has actually received surprisingly some mixed reaction from people because a lot of people have felt, well, why are we doing this? Why do we do this? And I feel like this is such a stupid thing to argue, especially when like, if I, you know, this Marco, like you've been to Canadian tire center, they do this in Ottawa. Like it's literally yeah, a part of their opening ceremony. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, um, you look at entities in the Eastern colonial world, especially in Canada, um, you know, the, that Eastern seaboard side, uh, big time universities are starting to do this. Like McGill has a native chief come in during grad ceremonies and, and big games to reinforce the fact that the celebrations or the competitions are taking place on, on, on sacred land and that they're doing so with the, um, let's just say agreement and approval of, of, of the chief and, and the clan, which obviously is symbolic. Uh, they don't need that kind of approval, but at the same time, it adds a sense of respect to the culture. Uh, it adds uh, further uh, credence to the importance and the history that they have on that land. And it also, I feel, makes it a little bit more inclusive from a rhetorical perspective, because now here you are, you know, 20, 30 years, uh, you know, hockey has really opened up in Europe, has really opened up uh, in the United States, great expansion. 
but we have seen few and uh, and and far less uh, than I would have liked uh, indigenous uh, hockey players. You know, we had the the obvious like Jordan Tutu. Uh, we had Ted Nolan as a coach. Uh, we have his son, uh, I believe, Jordan Nolan. Um, so you know, there's there's a lot going in there. Um, but I'd like to see uh, kind of more representation. I feel like this is a good way to get that. I, I don't know what you guys think. I feel like, you know, when I used to think of the Blackhawks, uh, I always used to wonder why that name was used, why that logo was used, uh, when they could have gone in so many different directions. Uh, and I feel like this is a good way of kind of consolidating that and also adding allies uh, to the brand. I think a lot of, of people just criticize them because they, they, they would want them to, to drop the name like the Redskins, the former Redskins did in the NFL, right? Uh, But that's like a directly racist term, right? So that... that yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's there's a difference between... like Just so for those that don't understand, Black Hawk was one, one guy. He was a, a warrior tribesman in, in the Chicago uh, area. Uh, that is that kind of delta in the Great Lakes. So, you know, when I was studying, uh, I wouldn't say indigenous history, but like North American history as, as a whole, and we touched on themes of, of, of the indigenous, Black Hawk came up. And I always found that peculiar how it's one person in, that was a leader of a tribe, right? So it creates a situation where a lot of, you know, informative ambiguity comes to play. But Ultimately, it's not Indians. It's not Redskins. It's not you know, like it's it's not blatantly archaic identifiers for uh, indigenous players, like or ind- uh, indigenous uh, symbolism. You know, so I, I I Black Hawk is where I kind of draw the line. I feel like that's it's acceptable. But like the Blackhawks are doing, if you're going to maintain it, then you better make sure that your your moral compass is on right and that you're leveraging the right groups in order to do this the right way. And I, I like that they've done that. Yeah, and just to add one final thing to anybody who's sort of against this um, because they feel it's indoctrination or things like that. Just remember, you're also singing the national anthems of two countries, and that could be a form of indoctrination to many people. So uh, we have definitely a lot of, uh, I'm not going to get into the whole political debate here in Montreal and Quebec specifically, but there are plenty of Habs fans who do not sing the national anthems when they are in the Bell Center. Well, hopefully we can get back into the Bell Center as soon as possible, but you know, yeah, that's how things are. Uh, but in any case, I think it's a nice, nice move and it takes less than a second. And it's, it's something that you can, you can glom to, but I think as always, action is better if you can donate, volunteer your time, if you can be in those communities and make friends in those communities, that's probably a better way to to build up, but this is a nice first start. Speaking of first starts, let's get right into the other side of the conversation. There were a couple of trades and signings and things like that, so let's get into that just out of the way. So, Adam, why don't you take us through those things? So, we had two big signings in, uh, well, today and yesterday, actually. Um, Anthony Manta signed a four-year deal, 28, uh, 22 point. Uh, 22.8, so 5.7 annual cap hit. Um, we were talking about it before we started the episode. I think it's a great signing, great value for Manta. Uh, Marco, what do you think about the, about the contract and the length? Well, uh, the length, in my opinion, is spot on because you're you're getting Anthony Manta in his prime, right? Like this is this is a kid right now that 
I think after this contract would have been a year removed, exactly, would have been a year removed from uh, a potential unrestricted free agency and could have taken that offer into his qualifying offer into free agency. Um, what we see from Manta right now is kind of an admission that he's on board for this rebuild. Um, I think that's a smart move because if Detroit plays their cards right and spends their money correctly over the next 24 months, uh, they could slowly start to creep up back into the competition as kind of like a team like Florida uh, tries to get younger and, and retools and, and kind of goes down in consequence. Um, so Anthony Manta, you know, uh, proven uh, at least 20 goal scorer, uh, was on pace for about 30 goals this year uh, before injuries got in the way. Um, I honestly, I think the player uh, is kind of coming into his own. He's in his prime. He's going to, he's 26 years old. Uh, so you got him from 26 to 30, which is the most performant years of a power forward. So in my opinion, I think this is spot on. I think that they got great value for him at 5.7 million. Um, I think that Steve Eiserman's patience here is what won out because had this contract been signed prior to free agency, uh, it could have probably been north of six. Uh, but I feel like the reality of, of the free agent market and seeing so many moderately big names like there are a few top six players still on the open market right now uh i think it it spoke to the desire of nhl players to get a certain sense of security as well so in you know in a normal circumstance this is a steal of a contract in my opinion if he can replicate his offensive production with dylan larkin uh, that he did this season uh near a point per game production uh, this is this is a steal um, so it's going to be up to Manta. If Manta can replicate, excellent contract. And if he can't, good contract. And That's I think I, I think he, he will replicate if he can stay healthy. So it was close to a point per game, as you stated before. Uh, it was 38 points in 43 games. So if he, can, if he can stay healthy, I'm sure he could be close to a point per game in the four yeah. years of his contract. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I said, I think... Steve Eisenman is quite good at negotiating contracts. I think we saw that with the way that Tampa Bay structure is done. Um, so I, I have no worries on that end. Uh, for me, honestly, and moving forward for this team, it's going to be how they're going to handle the, the recently drafted big RFAs. Uh, as we know, um, Philip Zadina, his contract comes out at the end of this season. So that's going to be a, a big topic of conversation, uh, especially if he continues producing the way he did. Um, and, you know, I I stand by this and I continue to say it. Um, Detroit's building something nice. They're building something with a plethora of talent, but you need to have veteran presences there. And Anthony Manta is one of the last remaining members of the, of the Detroit Red Wings that knew that legendary core uh, from five to six to seven years ago, uh, that's still on the team. So you gotta, you need a transition, and this is just an excellent win-win for both sides. And the second big signing that was signed just this morning, actually, was Ryan Pollock, uh, signed by the Islanders, two years, five million annual AAV. Uh, so ten million dollar contract. What do you think about it, Marco? Well, um, this is kind of a twofold thing for me. Um, and, uh, Ryan Pollock is eligible to become a free agent at the end of this deal. So all Lula Moriello did was buy himself some time, in my opinion. Um, he 
the, if you look at the way Ryan Pollock plays on this team, he's their number one defenseman. You know, 6'2", 217, 35 points in 68 games. He was on pace for a record offensive year. And then even in the playoffs, just, you know, on top of excellent uh, defensive play, you have two goals, eight assists for 10 points in 22 games. You know, for, for a guy that really came along slowly, uh, I feel like Ryan Pollock has really kind of rounded out his game. This is a guy who, when he was drafted in 2013, people saw as kind of like that prototypical offensive defenseman uh, that really is going to have to round out his, his defensive game. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of people were calling him a bust uh, as early as 2015, 2016, because, you know, he did his, his four years in Brandon. He went to Bridgeport, uh, 29 points in 54 games to start. And then the following season, uh, 24 points in 51 games. So actually a lower offensive production and by a significant margin on the goals column, um, but then the next year, he really came into his own, took over with 46 points in 55 games, and then never saw the AHL again. So in my opinion, this was good development from the Islanders. The only thing I would have liked is if this is your best overall defenseman and your best prospect in, in Noah Dobson uh, is, is too green, in my opinion, I would have tried to go for a little bit more term here. Uh, if I were the Islanders, because now they open themselves up to watching Ryan Pollock walk uh, in two years. But that, to me, they, you you have opened yourself up to another Capel situation, uh, and there is going to be a few young players that are going to need new contracts next year and the year after. So it could get messy. And and we're seeing a lot. So he's he's going to be UFA at the end of his deal. So he could, as you said, he could potentially just walk free and, and into free agency. Now we're seeing a lot of, on the flip side, we're seeing a lot of RFAs still unsigned. Um, speaking, oh, yeah. speaking of the Islanders, we have Barzal, who's still unsigned. Yeah. If we flip <laughs> it to Tampa Bay, we have Sergachev and we have Sirelli still unsigned. And Cernak. And Cernak. With, and both teams have almost no cap space to sign either, like, one of those players, right? Yeah, and, and, and honestly, like, if you take a nice little sweep right now of, of cap friendly, and you go and look at the available cap space right now in all teams, okay? There are, there is, oof, there are five teams with less, uh, No, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight teams with $10 million in cap space or more. Eight. Uh, of those eight, and I'm looking at it now, uh, the Senators, the Devils, the Kings, the Preds, these are all teams that are rumored to be to have a, an internal cap imposed. Um, it's going to be pretty interesting to see because I know the Devils were looking into potentially getting a defenseman. Uh, they went and got Ryan Murray, if I'm not mistaken. So I think they covered that end. The Los Angeles Kings and Mikhail Sergachev, though, that would make a whole lot of sense, in my opinion. Um, you know, I think the Los Angeles Kings trying to make an offer, even an offer sheet uh, for a guy like Mikhail Sergachev, I think that would jumpstart their rebuild in a serious way because, quite frankly, uh, they don't have a prospect... On, on the back end, for, on the left side specifically, uh, that is like Mikhail Sergachev, in my opinion, in their prospect pool. 
They drafted Helge Grimes, who's a right defenseman, um, but I just feel like Tobias Bjornfoot, which is one of their first-round picks from last year, simply isn't enough. So, you know, that, that's a team that I could see going for a guy like Sergeyev, Um, because all the rest of them, if you look at Florida, if you look at Columbus, Florida has an internal cap. Uh, Columbus has to re-sign uh, Pierre-Luc Dubois and Gavrikov, uh, so their cap space is figurative at the moment. So really it leaves you with, as we've discussed, New Jersey, Los Angeles, Nashville to a degree, but I think that if they would invest any more cap dollars, it would be at forward. Um, Detroit, and surprisingly, Boston. So yeah, there Boston can be some serious six movement. 6.6. And I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe they've signed everybody uh, as of right now except for uh, Nick Ritchie and Andre Tashke. Uh, oh, no, that's next year. So it's just Jake DeBrusque. DeBrusque, So yeah. Jake DeBrusque should probably come in at about four to five. Uh, but there's also been talk of moving him. So I don't know. There's still, there's still movement. I think that you'll see things kind of stagnate until all the arbitration hearings are done. And then the remaining RFAs will kind of work themselves out the closer we get to actual return to play. And you have to think that Tampa Tampa Bay is maybe trying to move one of their three RFAs or at least another roster player, right? Because they have oh, 3 yeah. million cap space. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you we all know that they tried to move uh, Tyler Johnson. Who said no. We, yeah. Pardon? Who said no, basically. Yeah, who, said, yeah. who refused to waive his no trade and then was waived consequently. Um, and, and no one wanted to take that contract on for free. So clearly, um, they're going to have to get more creative on who they move. Uh, initially, uh, they wanted a first-round pick for either Tyler Johnson or uh, Alex Kalorn, which was, in my opinion, um, a wishful lot thinking. Ask. Yeah. yeah, wishful thinking, especially if you look at what the prices actually were for established players seen as cap dumps, like... Teams were getting fifth-round picks for top four defensemen simply because they just wanted to shed salary. Like it, to me, it, it didn't make any sense. It doesn't and, make any sense, and none of this is is normal right now. And Johnson is is one of ten players on their roster that has an either an NTC or, or a no move clause or non trade clause or a modified clause. So. Yeah, Th- well, them that's... trying to the trade is going to be just that more complicated, right? So they might just lose one of them to. Either an offer sheet or just have to trade him, trade their rights for cheaper. Yeah, I mean, look, guys, I'm, I would be, I would be lying to you if I didn't think that Mikhail Sergachev was worth an offer sheet. I'm going to be straight up with you. Oh, uh, he is. I think, I, I think, think he yeah, is exactly. Yeah. But I also think that Anthony Sorelli is worth an offer sheet even more because he's going to be paid less probably. Uh, Anthony Sorelli is going to be an elite. Selkie winning number two center. And he just wins. Like, this guy has won pretty much... I think the only thing he has left to win is an Olympic gold medal because he's won everything else. And he's, he's just... He plays in all situations. This is a guy that made the loss of Steven Stamkos bearable when it would cripple other teams. So I 100% believe that if a team was serious about competing this year and for the future, and that Anthony Sorelli was on the table, that that's an offer sheet that, that, that would happen. I just, at this point, 
I think teams are still waiting to see what's going to happen with the league. Uh, they're waiting to see when play starts up again, how it's going to start up again. Um, and really, like, we're, we're going to get on that subject now. The way that the league is, is, is talking is that they really want an 82-game season. But what we found out recently is that, at worst, we're going to get a 48-game season. And then we'll try and see if it's going to be 60 games or 82 games, but at least 48. Which, I mean, between you and I, um, we saw exactly this in the lockout of 2012-2013, right? Where there were 48 games played and then a full playoff. Yeah, so, so what what we learned recently was they, they, they wanted to condense the season down to 48 games at most, uh, at like the least amount of games, yeah, yeah. just so they could award uh, the Stanley Cup before the Olympics, which would Correct. start July 23rd. Um, so yeah, 48 games could be... and It's very doable. Very doable, but we didn't get any like information on what the format would be right 48 games would it be the canadian division would it be how would it work we don't know yet uh but yeah that would basically be cutting down the season to half of what we initially thought starting january 1st right yeah absolutely and again like it's not something we haven't seen before yeah right like it's it's not something that is new it's not something that we haven't dealt with and and played through but it is the logistics um, right that's that's the key yeah, that's exactly. what the key crux is. like i don't care if it's 48 games or an 82 game schedule um obviously there's the olympics to think about but i feel like and again don't get me wrong here but i don't see how if the nhl isn't already in a safe return to play setting by the summer of 2021, I don't see how we're going to host the Olympics, um, which usually bring in, you know, tens of millions of people into a small city or a set of cities in a country as small as Japan. Like it's you're asking for, you know, a, a Resident Evil Raccoon City style outbreak if you're if you're going to do that. So. Uh, I know that there's a lot of stress in regards to the Olympics, and, and that's still up in the air as well. Uh, but it's a valid point, and it's the reason why a lot of uh, owners uh, are concerned, because the NHL's uh, TV rights belong to NBC. NBC in the United States covers the Olympics as well, so they have no choice uh, but to meet uh, NBC at some point down the middle, should the Olympics carry on. So, well, I mean, they do have their, their secondary streaming services like Peacock. Like, that's what's been happening with MSNBC, uh, NBCSN, right? They've been pushing a lot of the matches over for different sports or different fixtures directly to their streaming service. So even though it's technically competing with their own products, they just get you to go into their subscription service, right? So maybe that's something that we can look at. I have a strange question, and maybe you guys can answer it. And uh, apologies if it's dumb, but... Obviously, with the reduction of games, does that mean any way, shape, or form that there's a reduction of pay for players? Um, from yes. So then, clearly, th- th- there's a reality. That's yeah, it's a holdup. So, so um, the more we look into this, the more murky it gets. So obviously, we're just playing guesswork. Speaking of guesswork, this kind of conveniently brings us to our next topic, which is the OHL and the choice to have no hitting in the league for next year and the strange reasoning behind it. So I'll throw this over to you, to Adam, to sort of set up. So the OHL announced they would have a season 
start in February, early February, um, with no hitting in the league whatsoever. And this decision was based off of what they saw with the QMJHL, who had to suspend some of their games, some of, of their activities, um, which, look, I initially thought was completely crazy. How, how are you going to play hockey at high level uh, with no hitting, right? But then, looking back, you're seeing the QMJHL, who basically had to suspend games in Quebec, in Ontario, and they, they have what... I don't know if, Marco, you have the exact numbers. They have, I think they have six teams still playing or, or that played during the month of October, right? Yeah, they uh, all the maritime teams played. Um, so there's one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah. Yeah, and six then, teams. Um, they had a game... In Shikunami last night, actually, uh, between the Sag Sagnians and the um, oh, I forget now. But there, there was a game uh, as well there. Uh, there's supposed to be a game in Val d'Or uh, between the Huskies and the Farrars as well uh, yeah. this weekend. So a slow return, but definitely any team that's in the red corridor between Quebec City and uh, Montreal is a no go. Yeah. So we. we- I mean, seeing the OHL come up with the no hitting, I don't know if it's going to make much of a difference. I don't either. Given that, you know, the players are still in the same arena, they're still on the same ice. I mean, the hitting part, what, how much of a difference can it actually make? Uh, I don't know what you think about the whole situation, Marco, but. I mean, look, I, I will do, I will split this into two ways. Hockey without contact uh, from a men's perspective. I believe takes away from the reality of, of, of the sport. Uh, and I think the concern is not when, when kind of being against uh, this ruling out of hitting. I think the concern is simply that it will force the players to adjust their game in a way that is non-conducive to translating their current abilities to that of an NHL pro down the line. Um, in, in plain English, what that means is they don't want players to get accustomed to no hitting because there will be hitting uh, once this is all kind of handled or if they move on to another league or another situation uh, before the end of the season. Because remember, uh, a lot of these kids can sign, uh, you know, amateur tryouts and join the AHL if their season is ended or even their NHL team, uh, as we saw with, uh, with some players in the bubble uh, during the last playoffs. So, are you putting these kids at a disadvantage from a developmental perspective or not? Uh, and then you, you have to counterweigh that with, well, is allowing hitting going to exacerbate and promote the spread of this virus further or not? And now, you know, if we look at Quebec and what's going on in Quebec, a lot of the cases came from everyday life, uh, you know, and then we're kind of spread within dressing rooms and then spread during games because hockey you know, there's a lot of spitting, there's a lot of moisture, there's a lot of in-your-face kind of sport, uh, a contact sport. There is risk for transmission regardless of how we do it. Uh, a simple lining up at a face-off could, could be grounds for transmission because you're within six feet of each other. Uh, you're right next to each other at a face-off. Heck, you're hacking and slashing, and if you're Brendan Gallagher, most of the time someone's on top of you. So... <laughs> I get it, um, but this isn't based on science. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that not hitting 
isn't based on science. I'm saying it's inconsistent. It's intellectually inconsistent. If you're worried that transmission is going to be an issue and hitting is where you draw the line, it is intellectually inconsistent. You should simply not play or allow it to be played. This is the way I see it because that you outlaw hitting or not, players are still going to be passing in proximity to each other in serious ways. There are still going to be, um, you know, crease crashers. There are still going to be, uh, you know, uh, man-to-man coverage. You're not going to be playing ringette. No disrespect to ringette. But Ring, and ringette ring, is legit. <laughs> it is it's legit. legit. <laughs> and, and again, it takes significant athletic skills. Uh, but when you're watching how the play, play, like how players play in ringette, it's more of a man-to-man positional coverage trapezoid-style defense. Well, they're adapted Hockey, to no hitting, no contact. Hockey exactly. has contact. Yeah. Exactly. So are you doing a disservice developmental-wise, which we covered, but also... Are they really like these are players that were taught for the last 16 to 20 years of their lives to play a certain way? Are you really expecting them to suddenly shift? And what happens if they don't follow the rules? Is it an ejection? Is it a penalty? Is it a suspension? Is it a yeah, fine? you get a penalty every time you come two meters in, in the distance, somebody exactly. right? Like it just you can't control that because then imagine you have. And, you and will see hits too. If you spit on the if you spit on the ice, are you technically a bio? Is that bioterrorism? Like I'm, I, mean, I know I'm exaggerating here, but like, no, but it it opens yeah. up serious conversations in jest. Why why the didn't they just re- mandate that everyone has to wear a face mask? Like I don't like like that, like I, like mean, I mean like I we mean, have face masks in hockey, right? Like we have that 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 we have those things already available. That's not something. No, that's a that's a cage. No, I'm not talking about. Like, like, I'm talking I, about like you know like the, there's the glass version. Uh, sorry, uh, yeah, the the, the fishbowl. Fishbowl. Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. I couldn't, yeah thank you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that would be a great alternative. Yeah. I mean, I, I also like you're still having like just because you're not going to be hitting and checking people, that doesn't mean there isn't going to be board play. Like that's that's a huge part of the game intrinsically. And, and board play, and ultimately, you and you're still on a bench, a tiny bench where a bunch of guys yeah. are together. Like, yeah. I, I mean, like uh, again, I I understand the, uh, this. Uh, if I'm looking at it from the outside, come looking in, this looks like they're desperately trying to save face. When in reality, this is going to kill their season. Like there's, yeah. this seems like a, a last ditch effort to to hold the idea of a season in the OHL. When in reality, I think this most likely when we get to February, and I, I'm saying this unfortunately because it's obviously going to wreck so many careers in the way that they have to operate and the way that they're, the funding and all the development time and all that stuff. But I I just don't see it. Like you see how all the problems that we were just talking about before with the 48 game season with the NHL. I can't imagine how much worse it is at grassroots level hockey. And in the middle with with juniors. It kind of falls into the same category, right? Yeah, and the simple fact you're seeing junior leagues just thinking about canceling the the entire season, you have to think the HL and NHL are like they're just trying to figure out the best way to return to play. Because if leagues so close to them are, are coming up with no hitting alternatives, you have to think that they also. Um, are struggling and finding a way because we talked about it uh, in in recent episodes how the bubbles cost a lot to to make and maintain and how it, it would be possibly uh, like impossible to make bubbles for the, the entire season right so it's definitely interesting what, what they're gonna do and and when they're gonna start up 
again. Yeah, like I, it's weird that I say this, but I, I'm actually preferring the system that the NCAA is proposing, which is kind of like a hybrid bubble kind of tournament-esque style uh, of play where they would congregate for a weekend um, and kind of play like, you know, almost like a round-robin style where they bang out four games uh, and then isolate again for a week, uh, make sure the tests are good, and do it all up again two weeks later. You know, and we're, uh, what, we're nine days removed uh, from the start of the NCAA season for some teams. Man, that's that I can't I can't imagine what that would do to your your physical conditioning. Four games in that kind of span, like that's that's a lot. They're eighteen year olds. Oh, yeah, sorry. That's you know what? That's a very good point. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good. Like, but, sorry, but even at eighteen, playing, that's 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 a lot to change, right? AJ, I was playing ninety minute soccer games at the age of thirteen, uh, and I used to play two to three times a day. But so I was sure. I, I, okay, I, like amateur athletes that are on the cusp of professional true, athletes. True, true. But you couldn't yeah, do it yeah. in the NHL level. That's no, possible. of course not. Exactly. Yeah. But but again, like they're used to this. They're used to playing in spurts. This is the NCAA, right? This is like almost like the AHL, where they play two games in two nights and sometimes three games in in, in three nights. Uh, especially once you get into like the divisional playoffs. Um, you know, last year Wisconsin could have played three games in three nights, and they're opening. Uh, playoff game uh, in the Big Ten. Uh, it's a good thing they sucked because uh, or else they would have played those three games. Uh, but they um, they thankfully lost in two and there was no third game force, but it would have been three games in three nights. So it's very possible and something that happens in the NCAA. And, and again, like these, this is the time where athletes can perform that frequently that well. So I, I don't think there's an issue there. And I think it's a viable solution. Um, but definitely we're going to have more information on this topic uh, when we record next week. I think the most reasonable alternative for the NHL would be to, you spend two, three weeks in the same division or the same, you're playing the same teams and then you jump in, you isolate and you play against the same group of teams that are are nearby. So you could kind of stay, um, in with the same group of players and with the 48 game seasons, you could have time to travel and like isolate bef- between those those kind of stretch against oh, the same teams, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like, and, and, and I think that's spot on. I feel like if we're going to do this whole like realignment uh, and, and a K and division, you know, then there's going to be you're going you're gonna to have the opportunity to play against six other teams, right? Because there's seven Canadian teams, so there's six games. Say five games versus each. So you're at 30, and then you have the other 18. Well, then go into three other bubbles at some point within the calendar year and play six games in each bubble, and there's your other 18 games, and boom, 48. And you're there. So the shorter the schedule gets, the more adaptable the strategy is going to be, in my opinion. And I feel like that's the same thing that's going to happen in the OHL. It's the same thing that we're seeing right now in the NCAA. I just hate to be a stats guy this year because you're going to have to constantly be putting asterisks next to everything. Like, just th- think of all the different uh, stats that we kind of go through and all that kind of stuff. And now it's just going to be like, well, it was a shorter season. Well, it was also, you couldn't play the man. You, can, you couldn't hit the body. So, like, all those different aspects that we kind of take for granted right now, that will have to be accounted for either in the models or just going to put a big asterisk next to it and say, this was COVID season. <laughs> Models. No, models also depending on matchups, right? Yeah, that too. Uh, but it's worth noting that 
if the NHL does come back, they're coming back with hitting. Oh yeah, absolutely <laughs> no way that 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 they that are that are professional I, I think contact sport. You brought up a great point, story. Marco, earlier. Like it just this isn't hockey the way they they've played it for years, right? This is like your whole setup and your system is designed for this, and now you're expecting to well, pivot in half a season. Like come on, certain certain minor league circles don't allow hitting till I believe Bantam or yeah, but like at thirteen, um, right? So, I think or something like that. Like, yeah, exactly. So like, and even then, like. Sure, they don't allow it when you're playing on the ice, you know, communally. But I think like, GMA is league, one of the last like, leagues that actually holds that as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and you know, like I, I remember when I used to play hockey on the pond, uh, when I'd go to like Halifax to see my mother, and there we'd be body checking the holy heck out of each other. It was, it didn't matter. But at that age, you weren't allowed to body check in the Timbits area of uh, uh, the Timbits program of, uh, of Nova Scotia. It's only at the age of 14, I believe. So it, it was fun to see how that changed and how that kind of, you know, caused them to look or play the game differently uh, because they would often get penalties uh, because they threw a hit that was illegal at the time. Uh, simply because that's how they were used to watching the game, and that's how they were used to playing the game outside of the confines of, of organized sport. So I found that intriguing. Um, I 100% believe that the NHL is going to be coming back with contact. Uh, I think the issue at hand is simply uh, how many games and how does that affect the player salaries. All right, that's a lot of extra stuff that we guys gave you to think about. I'm going to throw it over to you both. Uh, last thoughts before we tag out for the show. Adam, I'm gonna let you go. I was about to say the same thing. I think we covered it all, and um, we're every week we're getting cl- closer to hockey, right? To, to the World Junior Championship. So yeah, can't wait for. Yeah, can't wait for it to start up again. Yeah, I mean, um, we're learning more and more about, and that, that was my topic as well. We're learning more and more about how that is going to go down, and. It's going to be very interesting. Uh, they've created a kind of a bubble situation. I think the bubble or the notion of a sports bubble is is an excellent, um, I guess, solution for a tournament style uh, play. And I think that it could definitely work in this situation. Um, for many players, it's going to be the first time they see actual competitive action in nine months. Uh, you know, if, especially if you're out west or in the OHL, uh, you haven't played since March. So it's going to be very fun to, to see how the players adapt and how the rosters kind of pan out. But uh, definitely uh, start expecting some, some serious news from international hockey over the next two weeks. Well, that's it for the Hockey Flow this week. Thanks so much for joining us. Of course, you can keep the action going and rolling 24-7 by following Adam and Marco on Twitter. You can find Adam's work at ReallyAdamB and, of course, Marco at The Hockey Expert. And if you want an extra dose of awesome, go ahead and check out his fantastic blog. That is ScrimmageAndStats.com. I'm Agent Cordero. We'll catch you guys next week.